Let's turn together this morning to Ephesians chapter 5 and verses 22 to 33. This is one of the great familiar passages in all the Bible on Christian marriage and what constitutes a godly family. We are so honored and joyful in the Lord to have that in our lives uh, by his grace, by his sovereign grace, to know and to, to learn of him, but to see that lived out daily in our hearts, in our lives, and no greater place to do that than in the family. And so let's look here together at this morning, at this passage here, the Apostle Paul has been describing to us what it means to have a worthy walk. To walk worthy of the calling, as he says in Ephesians 4, chapter 1, and to not walk after the old life, after the Gentiles, but to walk in newness of life. And then we're told in Ephesians 5, 1, that we are to walk in love, and the object of that love is Jesus Christ our Lord, who has given so much for us, a fragrant offering to God. We're to love one another as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. And then we're to walk as children of light. But here in this passage, we're told now what it means to live that life out. Last week we saw in verse 15, to walk carefully, to walk circumspectly, to walk wisely. And now we're able to see that spirit-filled life, meaning the spirit-controlled life. What does it mean to honor him and obey him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Well, this begins in the families with each of us. Whether you're single here this morning or whether you are married, that is not the key thing. You are in relationship. We all have moms or dads or stepmoms or stepdads. We have brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles. And in the local family, we learn what it is to live. And so when we come to the family of God, we come understanding that sense of community, that sense of intimacy and relationship that happens through salvation in Jesus Christ. So here he begins this morning in chapter 5 and verse 22 to the end of the chapter on what this means for us to live out this great truth in family. Let's look at these verses together. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also Wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave up himself for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. It's wonderful in God's providential timing that we are in this set of verses currently as our culture is going through the severe decline and disintegration of the family. We see it before us, don't we? As we speak this morning, we know that most of the world is mourning over the death of a lion rather than over another 4,000 babies that have been killed in their mother's womb due to abortion. That's how crazy our society has lost its value system and lost its spiritual and biblical moorings. As, as according to Isaiah 5, what is called evil is now called good, and what is good is now called evil. Animal life has achieved that of greater than even little children. Already the government has begun an investigation into the unfortunate death of this 
domesticated lion, if I can say it that way. But yet, how long has our nation, over 40 years, slew over 50 million babies? Now, we know there is forgiveness for sin, and we know that for anyone listening this morning, that if you've gone through the tragedy of an abortion, there is forgiveness for you in Jesus Christ, isn't there? And so that's our great hope. But yet, this is not simply a jettisoned piece of tissue. This is a human life at the moment of, con- of conception given God's blessing. Read Psalm 139 someday as to the intimacy and foreknowledge of God and his forming of us in our mother's womb. We see this even recently by the Supreme Court decision where now it's legal across the land for two gay people to be drawn into the intimacy of marriage. Uh, Under governmental rule, we know that civil union is one thing. Our constitution, all justice for all under the law, same justice. But marriage is not something that nine members of a Supreme Court can casually readdress or even supplant. Marriage has been there from the moment of creation It is God-ordained, and therefore it is a creation ordinance, and no one, judge or jury, Supreme Court or president, can redefine marriage. That is a heavenly definition, not a pragmatic governmental one. Interesting that one of the justices who supported that had said that now family must be redefined as not one man, one woman, in a procreative state by God's grace to produce children, They've redefined family as as eliminating children and eliminating one man, one woman relationships. Now, as our heart goes out to the gay community, and we long to see them one for the kingdom and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, truth is truth. And uh, we know that here God does not condone, nor does he embrace homosexual marriage. People's identity has even been in crisis lately, as we're seeing in the transgender community. And what was an obvious distinction in male and female distinctives and gender relationships now has become something of a question mark as to, is it by cellular definition? Is it by XY chromosomes? Is it simply by the way that I feel as my own emotional or mental state on whether I'm male or female, or even as we've seen in the media, black or white? Is it a matter of one's personal feeling? Can you change your race? Can you change your sexual identity by simply feeling that you're not certain things? In past generations, this would have been laughable to think one's feelings could alter genetic structure. But today, people want to be accommodating to their proclivities, prejudices, and their sins. And so this morning, I thought by way of introduction, I want to bring you to what the family really looks like. What is biblical marriage? I've entitled this section in Ephesians 5 as Wives and Husbands, The Mystery of Christ and the Church. But here I thought we could see how did this begin? Where did marriage begin? Where did the relationship begin? Where did the battle of the sexes begin? We're going to see that here in just a few moments. I would like to ask you just to stir your thinking this morning. If someone comes to our congregation is say, in a gay relationship, and one of them in that relationship, married, civil union, or otherwise, becomes a Christian and that family or that union must be broken, how would you counsel them according to Scripture? Say that gay couple, whether it's two lesbian women or two homosexual men, have now adopted maybe a child or two under law, but one of them comes to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. How would you counsel them? How would you instruct them? What would happen to those children? How would that family be redefined? Of even, even a more serious question is in the LGBT community, uh, the lesbian, uh, gay, bisexual, transgendered community. What if someone has uh, said that they are a male but want to be a female and has maybe taken estrogen or steroids or have had implants put in or has had surgery to alter their sexual identity or say someone is a woman who feels like they should be a man and they've gone through corrective surgery they feel to now equal in their physical bodies what their heart's desire would be if they come to know Jesus Christ how would you counsel them 
How would you encourage them to live the rest of their lives? And how would you encourage them to find their real identity in Jesus Christ? These are serious questions. They're questions that our culture is asking. And I believe, as Peter says, that Scripture is sufficient for all matters of life and godliness. And therefore, the Word of God is inerrant and infallible. It is free from error. It is true in all of its parts. And therefore, no stone is left unturned. Scripture speaks to these issues. And in this series, we're going to unfold that a little bit more so that we know and that we're well-equipped of how to function as salt and light in this community. Because as we've said before, even with the Muslim terrorists, the Muslims are not our enemy. They are our mission field, aren't they? The gay community is not our enemy. They are our mission field. The transgender community is not our enemy. They are our mission field. The unregenerate heterosexuals are not our enemy. They are our mission field. Someone needs to go and tell them of the love of Christ. Someone needs to go and share with them the glorious truth of forgiveness and the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross and that he was raised bodily for our justification. And so here, no matter what society does, no matter who is elected as president, no matter what Congress may interpret, no matter what laws of immorality or morality our government may pass, the church has always set the standard when it comes to issues on the sanctity of life, on the issue of relationship, of identity, and gender, and sexual uh, areas of identity, as well as the biblical foundation for godly relationship and marriage. So where did this all begin and where did it go wrong? Will you turn back with me to the book of Genesis? As you know, Genesis is the book that is entitled the book of beginnings. We're told in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. It doesn't seek to give an apologetic as to how God made it. He simply did. He's always existed. He created all things by the word of his power. And in Genesis chapter 1, we are told of his wonderful creation, that he spoke it into existence. We know that this is not theistic evolution. We know that it is not evolution. We know that this is not the God of the deists who maybe set certain things in motion and then allowed it by natural law to unfold itself. No, God is intimately involved in his creation. And so when we read here that the earth was out form and void in Genesis 1-2, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Here we see the infancy of creation. Here the darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Here we see Trinity involved in creation. And we saw that God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw the light, it was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. How do we know that God created everything that we see, the heavens and the earth, the creeping things, the birds, the fowl of the air, the fish of the sea, the, the beasts on all fours that walk and, and cover the earth? We know that after every day, he said the evening and the morning was the first day. And we notice this uh, in, in verse uh, 8 here, is it? And there was evening and there was morning the second day. Evening and morning, a 24-hour day. This wasn't billions or millions of years. Again, time does not alter genetic DNA. That is foolishness to believe. That's junk science. But here it is a creative work. God created all things. But notice here now in verse 24, And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creeping things, beasts of the earth according to their kinds. This is a tremendous verse that poo-poos evolution because it's saying that they gave forth according to their own kind. Their DNA or genetics was not altered to produce a different kind. They stayed within their own makeup. Everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And now here in verse 26, then God said, let us make man, notice the inference, in our image. Let us make man in our image, Trinitarian reference of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. 
no other part of creation was made in the image of God. According to Psalm 19, we're told that the heavens declare the glory of God, but no animal, no bird, no fish, no dog or cat, no lion was made in the image of a holy God. Listen, when an animal dies, it simply dies. It goes out of existence. There is no eternal bode for animals at all, ever, in Scripture. They are there for our pleasure, for our enjoyment. How wonderful it is to have dogs or cats in our homes as pets. If you maybe live in a ranch and you have horses or other kind of livestock, wonderful things. We are to be good caretakers of these things. It's part of God's creation, but yet they are not made in his image. When they die, that's it. I've had a dog, Murphy, a wonderful labradoodle for 14 years, and we love Murphy. He's a great dog, but when he dies, people have asked me, are you going to be sad? And I'll say, well, I'll miss him, but what we'll do is we'll get another dog. Well, maybe not another dog right away. That's right. We, we have four up there. We'll just love the other ones a little more. Thank you, honey. We'll love the other ones a little more strongly. But you know, they're replaceable. They're replaceable. But when a person dies, as most of you here this morning have gone through the death of a mom or a dad, a brother, sister, a son or a daughter, you know the pain associated with that. And, and they don't go out of existence. Their soul, if it's regenerated, goes into the presence of the Lord immediately. If they're not, they, they end up going to the place of perdition of everlasting torment different than animals. Man is not a higher form of animal life. We are made in the image of a holy God. It separates us from the animal kingdom. We are not alike. And so here when he says God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Notice the distinction. Male and female he created them. Our maleness and femaleness is from the sovereign mind of an omniscient God, a creator God, who made us distinct, male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. Now understand something. The creation of maleness and femaleness isn't simply an XY issue of chromosome. It's not simply a genetic issue. It's not simply a DNA issue. The maleness and femaleness also affects our emotions, how we see life how we are fashioned, how we cope with things, and therefore we are to honor each other as created beings in God. And he says, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Notice the procreative element of creation. Procreation is good. Be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea. What's he saying? It's okay to cash a fish, kill it, and eat it. It's okay. You can do this. And over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Interesting, one of my kids, one of our kids growing up, one of the girls, she loved hamburgers, and we were driving by a farm one day, and uh, one of the boys said, uh, look at those cows. Uh, I wonder when they're going to turn into hamburger." And my daughter was stunned. And she said, what do you mean? I don't eat a cow. She goes, what do you think? Where do you think the hamburger meat comes from? The boys were talking. I don't think she's, she had a burger for several years to try to get over that concept. Animals are not to be held and worshipped in high esteem that way. Fish, birds, creeping things upon the earth. We are to subdue them. We are to have dominion over them. Now we're not to slaughter them. This is part of God's creation. We are to be good stewards of God's creation. But God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree of seed and its fruit you shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I've given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Notice this is the only time in all of his creative work that God says what he made was very good, and that was after he fashioned men and fashioned women after his own image. Now let's go to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 gives us not a different account of the creative order, but it gives us 
really a more detailed account of the creative order. Look here with me in verse 4. There are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day of the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Notice that phrase there, the Lord God, the Lord God. Uh, this is unique from Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. Now God calls himself the Lord God, the present one, the Jehovah God, the sovereign. Here he is intimately involved in his creation. In Genesis 1, it was simply God created, Elohim. But now he brings further definition to his name. And every time you see the mention of God, now from here out in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, it's the Lord God. It's the Lord God. And he says, these are the generations of the Lord God. And when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field was yet spring up, for the Lord God did not cause it to rain on the land. Until the great flood of Noah, there was never rain that happened on the face of the earth. Isn't that amazing? No wonder it took Noah 120 years to build the ark, and he came under great scorn and ridicule from his contemporaries. But when he said that he had to build a boat and he said he had to have it because rains were going to flood the earth, they laughed at him. Water that would drop out of the sky, it had never happened before. How did he care for the plants and the trees? How was it furnished until that point? Genesis tells us here, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. That's how the foliage was reproduced. That's how the foliage was watered. And then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground. Here it is. Here's how Adam was formed. And he breathed in his nostrils, notice the phrase, the breath of life. Man became a living soul, a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of the land is good. Delam and Onyx stone are there. And the name of the second river is Gion. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, which flows out of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. So here we see this wonderful garden that God created and planted and he made for man. And notice those two things that were in the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In verse uh, 15, the Lord, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to keep it, to work it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. Here's the first covenant. Here's the covenant of creation, the covenant of works. Here's the covenant of administration. Man was now born. He was created out of the dust of the earth. God breathed life into him and he became a living, rather than creature, it really should be translated soul. He became a living soul, suke, soul. The Lord formed man. And he said, you shall not eat of that tree of good and evil, or you will surely die. Understand something. Man was not created without the potential to sin. He was created in a state of innocence. This is different than God. This is different than our Lord Jesus Christ, who was conceived of a virgin by the Holy Spirit. Our Lord is eternal. Our Lord could not have sinned. He did not sin, but he was not able to sin. Why? He was not conceived with a sin nature. Adam, and we'll see in a moment, Eve, were in a place of innocence. They were the only ones who had an innocent, unfettered relationship with God before sin entered the world. They were able not to sin 
but they were never not able never to sin. They were in a place of innocence, not glorified sinlessness. Very important distinction. And then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. And all the men said, Not too many hearty amens this morning. And the men said, Amen. It is not good for a man to be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field, every kind of bird of heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of heaven, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was no, not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs, and he closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And that the man said, This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. My wife showed me a picture last night as I was studying, and she showed me a picture that someone had put on Facebook, and it said, the first man and woman, and it was a pile of dirt and a rib from a rib cage. It was very clever. Here God took man out of the dust of the earth, but he made woman out of man. I love performing marriage ceremonies, and when doing so, I love to say, notice he did not take a bone out of the foot that she was beneath man or out of the head that she was above man but out of his side she was a helper with man man and women together and therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother do you want to know what marriage is here's the first wedding vow right here a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife it means to cling to cleave to never let go and they shall become one flesh. Notice the three places here. You leave, you cleave, and you weave. One flesh relationship. That's impossible, by the way, in a homosexual relationship. You cannot become a one flesh union. You cannot be fruitful and multiply. They cannot reproduce. They have to recruit. And so the man and his wife were both naked. And they were not ashamed. So here we see what marriage is. One man, one woman, under God, in intimacy, in a one flesh union for their lives. Wonderful hope. They were unashamed. They saw each other in the nakedness of their bodies, and they were not ashamed. Marriage eliminates the shame of what happens before marriage when there is sensuality or lasciviousness or fornication or adultery or other things, marriage eliminates the shame. It brings you into an intimacy of relationship. Now in Genesis chapter 3, we know the fall happens. We know the fall happens. Right in verse 1, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field, and the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, here is, here is Satan... Did God actually say, notice what he's trying to do. One of Satan's chief things is to distort God's word. And he rests it right here. He mangles it. He twists it. Did God actually say, he's putting doubt, you shall not eat of, the, of any tree in the garden? Notice how he reinvents what God has said. And the woman said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Notice what Eve did. The serpent twisted God's word. Eve added to it. God didn't say you shall not touch it, but you shall not eat of it. Here again, her heart was being wooed. Her heart was being deceived. And the serpent said to the woman, you will not die, for God knows, now he's trying to twist it, that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is the heart of the New Age movement. 
I remember Shirley MacLaine at the first Earth Day in the 19, early 1990s, I believe it was, or 80s, that she got up before a festival of people and she said, I want you to know something. I am God. Amazing. Amazing deception. It's as old as the Garden of Eden, right? You will not die. You will not die, but you will become as God. This is what the serpent said. God knows you'll, you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, again, it had an appeal to it. She took one of the fruit and ate it, gave some of it to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now look what happened. Here's sin entering the world. Both of their eyes were opened, and they knew they were naked. They became ashamed. They had sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They thought that they could cover their nakedness with their own human invention. And my brothers and sisters, people have been sewing fig leaves ever since that point to try to cover the shame of their sin. The fig leaves take on different meaning, but it's a shadow and type of how people try to mask their behavior and try to justify it. And notice this very interesting language here, verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Here's a pre-incarnate view of Christ himself. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to the man. He said to me, where are you? Now, he's not looking for information. He knows all things. He knew where they are, but he's wanting men to be responsible. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you you were naked? Sin comes into the world. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman. Notice, he blames the woman, right away, it's as old as the Garden of Eden. You're having problems in your marriage. My husband is this. My wife is this. If I had a better mate, I wouldn't be struggling. She's the one to blame. And the, the kids fall into it. It's my mom and my dad's fault. Owning our own sinfulness is a very strong thing in Christianity that we must stand before God and to say against you and you alone, my God, I have sinned against you. But here the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I eat it. She puts the blame on Eve right away. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me. Not even she could own it. The man blamed the woman. The woman blamed the serpent. And she says, and I ate it. Now look at here in verses 14 to 21. This is so powerful. Now sin has entered the world. There's consequence to sin. It's not a benign thing. Notice here he says, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above the beasts of the field, and your belly you shall go, dust you shall eat the days of your life. Verse 15, this is speaking of the coming of the Messiah and Jesus Christ and the defeat of Satan. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is a prophecy concerning the birth of Christ and his wonderful once for all sacrifice on the cross. Notice this. Now to the woman, he said this in verse 16, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. The inference is this, that before the fall, there was still some pain in childbearing, but now because of the curse of the fall, the pain will be multiplied. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. I want to stop here for just a moment. It's important for you to, to know what this word means here. Your desire shall be for your husband. Would you go with me just over to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. Here we see the same Hebrew word used. And it's used by God when addressing Cain. You know the sad story of Cain and Abel? And here in verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? 
If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Notice this phrase, its desire is for you. The same phrase used to to Eve, your desire shall be for your husband. Sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Notice the commonality of language. Cain did not adhere to the warning of God. He ended up killing his brother. He was jealous. The Lord found contentment in Abel's sacrifice. He didn't in Cain's sacrifice. But notice this here. In chapter 3, let's go back there to verse 16. You see that in, in Genesis 4, that sin is crouching at the door, but you shall not, its desire is for you. What does it mean? The same thing here in Genesis chapter 3 and in verse 16. Your desire shall be for your husband. A lot of people feel that because of the fall, that now the wife will seek to please her husband. The desire of the woman will be to please the husband. That's not what it means here. What it means is that her desire shall be to control the husband. Do you want to know where some of the battle of the sexes begins? Here it is. Because of the fall, the woman, her multiplying in pain and childbirth shall be given, but the woman shall seek to control, to dominate the man, just as sin in Genesis 4 sought to control Cain. Its desire is for you. Its control is for you. The same thing here in Genesis 3. Your desire now shall be for your husband, to control your husband, to dominate, to master, in other words. And what does God say? And he shall rule over you. This is anathema to most, to most women, is it not? So here, sin enters. This is part of the curse for the woman. You're going to want to control your husband. Ladies, if you seek to control your husband, this is as natural as the fall. It's a sin, but you, now you know why. You can thank Eve one day for this. Your desire is to now dominate, control your husband, and the husband's desire then will be to rule over. But look at what he said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Notice the same word. There's pain in childbirth. There's going to be pain in relationship. There's even pain in creation, pain in how they produce food. Sin produces pain. He said, you shall eat of it the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. Man shall be cursed and work six days by the sweat of his brow to now provide that which the earth was naturally giving. Now he had to plow thorns and thistles. He had to plant seed. He had to have his share of pain of the consequence of sin. God made Adam for him. Now look at this. In verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. But look at this wonderful shadow and type. Don't miss this, beloved, in verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Amazing. The Lord had to take one of the animals that he made, that he created, and kill it. He had to take skins from those animals, and he covered their nakedness. Notice, he replaced the fig leaves of their own shame, of their covering, of their own disobedience, and through a blood sacrifice, through the skin of a livestock, he covered their nakedness. This is a shadow and type pointing to the blood sacrifice that ultimately would cover our shame and defilement and sin through the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Is not our God good? This is a prophecy. This is a foretaste of what it would be in salvation. God provided the right covering. Because of this, they were driven from the, the Garden of Eden. 
God sent him out from the garden to work the ground. He drove out the man to the east of the Garden of Eden and placed his cherubim with a flaming sword that turned away to every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Man was punished. He was driven from the paradise of God. Paradise was lost. Sin now had entered the world. What a tragedy. This is how the battle of the sexes has begun. Woman's desire now will be to dominate the man. The man's desire will be to dominate the woman. This is a result of the curse. Women will increase pain in childbirth. Men will have to increase in pain in providing and working hard to provide for his family. Here's the, here's the beginning of it. Now, as we go to Ephesians chapter 5 this morning, I want to use this term respectfully. But I believe in Ephesians chapter 5, in the right view of these relationships, this is how God seeks to reverse the curse in human relationships between the male and the female, between the man and the woman. And we're going to see three things in this passage. We'll most likely only get to the first one this morning, and maybe we won't even complete that. But in Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 33, we have the setting of the right relationship between men and women. And it happens in Jesus Christ. Wives and husbands, the mystery of Christ in the church. Three things I want to show you in this passage here. One, submissive love. Two, sacrificial love. And three, sacred love. One, submissive love. Two, sacrificial love. And three, sacred love. Let's look at this first one here together. Submissive love. He addresses the wives first. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, in the, the best of Greek manuscripts, that word submit is not in verse 22. It is a carryover from verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Hupotasso, it means to live under the authority of another. And so here we're seeing that Paul is saying, wives, submit. The church here has just been told to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, to give thanks always in your hearts to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not to be drunk with wine. We're not to be given over to the sacrifices of Dionysius and let the drunkenness of wine even lead to idolatry and debauchery, but we are to be being filled with the Spirit, to live the Spirit-controlled life, the obedient life and submission to God. That is our joy. That is our delight. And so he says in verse 21, we're to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We're to honor authority among each other within the body of Christ. But he says he carries this to the wife. Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now let's put this in context a little bit here this morning because submissiveness is something that just doesn't affect a woman. It affects all of us. Submissiveness is part of the fabric of our faith in biblical Christianity. Uh, go with me here to Romans chapter 13. Paul here is calling for a submissiveness, and he's calling for a submissiveness to a certain group of people, and he's calling them to governmental leaders. Now, this is against any kind of certain political distinction or, or cultural distinction. This fits into any culture. Whether you have a tyrannical leader, whether you are living in a, at least we currently are, in a, in a republic or a democracy, that may change one day. We, know, we don't know how it's going. But whether you can vote and have the freedom to vote people into power, whether you're under dictatorship or tyrannical rule is irrelevant. Notice this in verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. That does not mean that God raised up Hitler and God raised up Nero, and we are to follow to the letter their evil desires. No, he's saying that no authority exists except God has established it. He has not established the evil in which they dictate that those things to other cultures. There's a difference between the office and the individual policy of that office. So notice here, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Uh, verse 4, for he is God's servant for your good. If you do wrong, be afraid. He does not bear the sword in vain. There's a verse on capital punishment. 
for he is the servant of God who avenges, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Again, therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So Romans 13, God calls all his people, all peoples everywhere, to honor government authority. So, you did not maybe vote for this president, maybe you did. Regardless, we are to honor his authority, the office. We did not vote for Supreme Court justices. They are appointed by presidents throughout the years. We honor their authority. We do not honor them when they contradict God's word. We obey God rather than men. We honor congressional leaders, Senate and House representatives. We honor local and state officials. We honor governors and so forth. We are to live as a life of submissiveness in those things. Would you go with me to Titus chapter 3? Because now Titus calls for his submissiveness in a very wicked culture on the island of Crete. And Paul is encouraging these dear Christians to reminding them to be submissive. They were on the habit of maybe going their own way or given over to almost a mutiny in some cases. But here in a very wicked, wicked, wicked island of Crete, Titus 3.1, Paul tells Titus, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Uh, some of your translations might say magistrates. Uh, this is taking it over simply from a political power to the policing power. We are to honor law officials, in other words. We are to honor the officials that carry out the rule of law. We are to honor policemen. We have policemen in our congregation. In fact, as we read in Romans chapter 13, they are called the servant of God. Only two offices in all of Scripture, the office itself, are called servants of God. And that is the office of an elder or a pastor or the office of a governmental uh, representative, authority, or a police officer. So we have something in common. Servants. Paul says, be ready. To be ready for every good work. Speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle. Show perfect courtesy to all people. What does he mean? Give respect to the authorities. Give respect to the authorities. If a police officer stops you and you think you don't deserve the ticket, it's okay. If it's at night, turn your dome light on. Put your hands where you can see them. Roll down your window. Have your license and registration and insurance ready. Speak kindly to them. If they wrongly give you a ticket, it is not your place to act rudely to them, to debate them, to speed off or whatever. There could be severe consequences. You go to court. You follow the rule of law. You respect the officer. Thank the Lord for these officers. They are under great attack in our nation. They need to be respected. Listen, not only do black lives matter, not only do unborn children's lives matter, not only do white people's lives matter, not only do Mexican lives matter, not only do Asian lives matter, but blue lives matter as well. These police officers, all life matters, doesn't it? It's all sacred before God. We are to respect them. We're to pay homage to them. We are to honor them. May I encourage you to do something next time you see a group of policemen in a in a restaurant or a breakfast establishment or whatever, we've done this on occasion, uh, go over and tell them that you appreciate their service and buy their breakfast for them as a sign of your courtesy and thankfulness for them. It's a wonderful gift to give to them. So Paul is saying here, not only government authorities, but also the magistrates. Even in the church we have this, in Hebrews chapter 13 and in verse 17, even in local congregations, we are to see this. The apostle here writes in Hebrews 13, he says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. There's that word again, submission. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. Listen, whether it's governments, whether it's police officers, whether it's even in the local church, honor those in authority over you. Submit to them, love them, pray for them. As a pastor, it's a wonderful thing to serve you, dear people here, and you allow me to serve with joy. It's not to say that we don't have hard days, but you allow me to serve with joy. Thank you for that privilege and for the other elders and deacons here. Why does God request submission? It's to keep order. Order in society, 
order in local neighborhoods and communion, order within the local church. As we come here and we go back to Ephesians 5, he's wanting submissiveness within the home and he commands the wife to be submissive. This is not a put down. This is not a cultural distinctive. The Apostle Paul was no male chauvinist. He's calling for order within the family. Chaos is not by the Spirit of God. That's of the enemy. Order, peacefulness. And he says, wives, notice this, submit, live under the authority of, adapt to your own husbands. Very key phrase. You don't have to be submissive to anyone else's husband. You don't have to be submissive to other men in general, except that which is commensurate with your job or in society. Or within the body of Christ, we're to submit to one another. But wives, submit to your own husbands. Notice the object of that submission. As to who? The Lord. The Lord. You see, ladies, that being submissive, some call that the S word in society today. I realize that could be a negative word. It's not meant to be a whipping post term. It's, it doesn't mean that a woman is less than a man. On the contrary, women and men are equal in Jesus Christ. There is no barbarian or Scythian, slave nor free, male nor female, but you are all one in Jesus. Racial distinctions, ethnic distinctions, political distinctions, gender distinctions, we are one in Jesus. But yet, in the home, even though we are equal in our lives with Christ, there must be order. This is not a place that is substandard to God or substandard to the man. On the contrary, it takes much grace on behalf of any godly woman to honor her husband. Submit to his, your husband's authority as to the Lord. There's a passage that equals this, and as you know, a mirror passage in the book of Colossians chapter 3 and verse 18. He says this, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. You don't have to submit to your husbands in sinful things. You'd be surprised what I hear in counseling sessions by what husbands demand of their wives. No, you don't have to obey them as a child obeys a parent. You don't have to obey your husband as an employee would of an employer. No, this is a gift, by the way, you lovingly give to your husband. He cannot demand it of you. This is not a command for husbands to say, wives submit. That's not it. This is a generous grace gift that the wife says, as I do this, notice the affection is to the Lord. I want to submit in honor to the Lord. And therefore, I give this gift. I honor you as my husband in the authority of our home. In verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Notice the direction. The object for the woman submitting to her husband is the same object that the church has. Christ is head of the church, and the church submits gladly, willingly to honor the, to honor the husband of the church, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, as the church submits to Christ and also, whereas submit in everything to their husbands. The everything there means and that which is pleasing to the Lord. Wise, if your husbands are asking you to do something illegal or immoral or unethical, you do not have to submit to them. You honor Christ. You submit and do what's right in the Lord. You don't tolerate your husband's sinfulness and say, well, I'm just following my man. It doesn't work that way. You honor Jesus Christ. You honor him as godly women who will submit to him. How far does this go? Say this morning that maybe someone listening or maybe someone present here this morning has an unsaved husband has one that isn't living for the Lord, that's in the far country. How do you submit to a man like that? Go to 1 Peter chapter 3 with me, verses 1 to 6, and we'll have to close with this this morning. 
1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Here is the posture in the emotional state, the spiritual faithfulness of a godly woman in the home where maybe the husband is not effectively leading in honoring the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not to baby that man. You're not to make excuses for that man. You are not to lie for that man. You are not to do unsavory things to cover up his own spiritual waywardness for that man. You are to honor the Lord. But notice what he says here. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. Verse 1 of 1 Peter 3. So that even if some do not obey the word, that could be a believer living in disobedience, that could be an unsaved person, they may be won without a word by what? The conduct of their wives. It's not the constant nagging, it's not the constant sermonettes, it's not the constant complaining or yelling. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, you can win and change your husband's behavior by your life. What a promise for a godly Christian lady. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. Now, listen, let's not be legalistic. He's not saying if you braid your hair this morning, if you have a gold bracelet on, you know, or if you have a nice dress or a slacks or whatever, that ladies, that you're sinning. No, he's just saying, don't concentrate on the outward extremities, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is God's sight very precious. You want to know what gives a woman an air about her, a class about her? It's not the hair. It's not the clothing. It's not the jewelry. It's her spirit. It's her character. And you can tell the difference. I can tell you in a heartbeat, two women dress basically the same in a nice dress. They've both been to the beauty parlor and they look beautiful. And maybe they have on jewelry and gifts from their husband to wear and all this. But one looks like that stuff wears her and the other one looks like it's immaterial. I'm here to serve Jesus. You can tell that by the countenance of how they carry themselves. And it says, this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. This is pleasing to the Lord. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. You see, gals, the, the emphasis is on a quiet spirit, imperishable beauty, gentleness, that's in God's sight so precious. That's lost today. Well, we'll have to stop there this morning. We'll pick this up next Sunday. We're going to spend a few weeks on this. This is so important for us to understand biblical womanhood, biblical manhood, and to answer some of those hard questions we began the service with and how it would do. It pleases God. Let's pray together, beloved. Father, thank you. This is love that we've been looking at here this morning. It's a submissive love. It's a love that is rooted in Christ, rooted in God, because you have created us, male and female. You have set your work in motion, Lord. And you have given us roles, different roles to do. We're thankful, Lord, in our church for godly women, godly wives and mothers and grandparents, godly sisters and godly aunts and nieces. Lord, we're thankful for, for each one of them. Bless them. Bless the gals this day, a special day. Use them to glorify you. And Father, as husbands, may we honor them. May we cherish them. Now, Lord, I pray for any family that in our church or even within friendship of our church that's going through difficult times. Sordid times, times of abuse, times of upheaval, times of great disappointment, great possible separation. Maybe it's infidelity or financial struggles, whatever it may be. Oh, Lord, you've established your family. You've established your home. We've run from our moms and dads. We've clung to each other. And you've brought us into a one flesh relationship, one heart, one mind to serve our Lord and God. And so, Lord, we just pray for the families today. Bless them. Raise up new families here within our congregation. And, Lord, thank you for your grace given to all of us. 
And so families can be healed and restored. And, and Lord, we just pray for, uh, for restoration, repentance, reconciliation in all of our relationships within our individual families. And we know that this is just a microcastic picture of the family of God. And so may we love each other as you've loved us. For you are above all things, and therefore we honor you as our Lord and our Sovereign and our Savior. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.